Greetings, rulers. For our 55th night rule, we spoke with Professor Adnan Hussein of Queen's University, read from and discussed uh, Melanie Mag- Majidow's translation of uh, Princess Fatima, Warrior Woman. And also, uh, I've included here a preview for Night Rule 54. I was really pleased to be joined for the hour by Corey Pine, who's a really fantastic uh, journalist and writer, uh, writes a lot on the tech industry. As well, wanted to let you know today's episode features music from Hayase Yukako. The name of that song is Barefoot Melody, as well as Takanaka Masayosh, Jumping Takeoff. And uh, we close things out with uh, one of my favorite classics, uh, Countdown, extended version by Pulp. So without any further ado, please prepare to enjoy Night Roll. spinning its way to damnation amidst the fear and despair of a broken human race who's left to fight for what's good and pure princess fatima that's who i'm extremely pleased to welcome again adnan hussein we're going to continue uh, our reading series from princess fatima warrior woman the arab epic um i believe last time we left off uh, fatima had kind of completed her first uh, quest and had returned with uh, much spoils um and began her legendary journey that's right so we saw the beginning of her career as a as a hero a warrior woman um i've chosen a passage from the latter part um of the translation and later in the epic a lot of very momentous things happen in between including her um basically rejecting the marriage uh, proposal of her cousin several times, having a lot of trouble and difficulty dealing with him, but then great political issues sort of overwhelm the personal individual desires. And in order to effect an alliance and sort of have peace among these Arab tribes, the new Abbasid Caliph Caliph al-Mansur in his new capital city of Baghdad entreats with Fatima, whom he's become very impressed with because of her exploits, um, to marry her cousin Walid. And she basically, without giving voicing consent, is silent and is assumed as a result to have given consent and is married to her um, her cousin Walid, but they have a loveless marriage and she refuses to allow him to consummate it, saying, I don't need a man, and basically wants to continue with her career being a fighter, a leader. And um, 
actually going on some amazing expeditions to foil the Byzantine attempts to expand their territory in Asia Minor in the border frontier regions between the Arab Islamic empires after that first wave of conquests in the 7th and in the early 8th centuries. There's a bit of a stalemate and kind of a frontier has been set up and there's back and forth and there's sort of an origin story essentially of how the Arab tribes uh, come to this region and it is basically Fatima and her tribes come to this area. They defend the Muslim empires against the Byzantines and defeat their uh, attempts to expand as I said. Interestingly enough those efforts are led by a Byzantine princess, the daughter of the em emperor. So we have two warrior women and leaders uh, at this at this uh, point. Is this Irene? This who's, No, it's uh, not based so... on any. Well, I oh, mean, okay. it may be based on somebody like the, you know, hearing of, of stories of, you know, uh, Empress, uh, uh, you know, Irene, others. I mean, there are a number of Byzantine, very mm. important Byzantine noble women who are important to the history of the Byzantine Empire, but none of them are named in specific. I mean, actually the name um of the princess i believe i'm just forgetting a detail but i think it was malatia and it's she gives she founds the city of malatia as a kind of forward base for expansion um and this city of malatia which exists today in south you know in the southern part of anatolia um you know, is conquered by um, the Bani Kilab and by Princess Fatima. And so it's sort of an origin story. How did this city get its name? How did the Arabs tribes arrive there? And it's sort of like, say, Virgil's Aeneid, where, you know, how did Rome get established and who were the Romans, right? It's right. a similar kind of epic. A major theme in a lot of these ancient tales. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And um, so that was a very interesting, you know, period. And then after her successes, um, politically, you might say with the new Abbasid uh, uh, dynasty. Um, she then is um, basically in a really uh, terrible uh, tale, the trials of motherhood. She's um, subject to machinations, essentially, you know, date raped, drugged and date raped, you know, uh, raped, marital raped uh, by mm -hmm. Walid, um, conceives a son um, who uh, looks black. And so there's all these questions of paternity. And um, she is adamant that she, you know, you know, was is not an adulteress, but that it's Walid's, you know, uh, son, but everyone's saying, well, but how could it be? And, you know, so there's a lot of questions. And she ends up um, being put to a trial, essentially. Um, she manages to pass this trial. It's a very interesting set of episodes dealing with race and marriage and um, uh, issues and all of this, tribal politics. Um, mm -hmm. But she emerges um, unscathed from all of that, and her cousin and uncle are so marginalized in this process that they decide that they're going to convert to Christianity and join the Byzantines. Um, so yeah. a lot of interesting things happen in mm. between, but I, I thought a nice little episode would be um, the shortish chapter about um, called Like Mother, Like Son, about um, the emerging kind of career of um, her son, Abdul Wahab. So I'll begin Fantastic. reading yeah. with this uh, section. And what page are we starting on? 
this we're is starting from, uh, here. This Melanie Magidao's translation. 123 of um, Melanie Magidao's uh, translation, excerpting and um, translation of the tale of Princess Fatima, warrior woman, the Arabic epic of that al-Himma. In the morning, Princess Fatima and her son rode to the practice field of Malatya. Abdul Wahab practiced with his guards and the others who had gathered th there. But that day, they focused more on catching up and discussing strategy. Princess Fatima reported the latest news. We never heard any reply to the messages we sent to the Hejaz, and it seems to me that the Emperor of Rum is preparing to expand his empire. He gathers troops from every region and will likely move south. As for my uncle, Dalim, he too has written to the Hejaz, describing for them bounties and wonders in foreign lands. Abdullah interjected, We have had news from the Hejaz. They have packed up and are moving this way in droves like a rising tide. They will be here soon. Also, about ten days before your arrival, I wrote to the Caliph for reinforcements. I was thinking of running some raids into the lands of the room. We should have eyes and ears in the lands of the room to keep us informed of any developments there, said Princess Fatima. Good thinking. That afternoon, Abdullah arranged for several tribesmen to relocate to the land of the room as spies. They dressed as Armenians and set out for Constantinople. In the evening, representatives from Bani Kilab and Bani Sulaim attended a banquet hosted by Abdullah. After they had finished eating, Abdullah rose to his feet, raising the hands of Amr and Abdul Wahab in his own. He said, Be witnesses. I hereby consider these two as brothers. They are to share equally in my bounty and in my authority during my lifetime and after my death. No one is to order them around or to keep secrets from them. They are to be shown respect. Princess Fatima rose and thanked him for his speech and his generosity. Every morning, Princess Fatima took her son and Amr, son of Abdullah, to the practice field. There she taught them how to raise the dust opening doors upon a vast ocean of knowledge. She trained them in the give and take of the battlefield. It so happened that Abdul Wahab was more disciplined and rigorous. Princess Fatima was silently thankful for her son's success. But when Abdullah saw that his son was falling behind, he concluded that that al-Himma was focusing more of her attention on her own son. He took immediate action, engaging Dawood al-Najjar to train his son, Dawood had written a book entitled Kitab al-Furusiya on knighthood and was highly accomplished. Abdullah offered Dawood a hefty sum, a spacious furnished house in Malatya, and all his culinary provisions. In return, Dawood took over Amr's lessons on the practice field, leaving Princess Fatima to instruct her son alone. The Amira would often take her son far from Malatya on excursions that tested his endurance. In her prayers before bed, Princess Fatima would entreat the one to strengthen her son. Her prayers were answered, and every day, Abdul Wahab grew in physical ability and skill. One day, Princess Fatima said, My son, your equestrian and combat skills are well developed, and you have been endowed with physical strength and intelligence. Yes, I think by now I am as brave as you are. She laughed. You will be, <laughs> God willing. Several days later, Princess Fatima recalled this conversation. Abdul Wahab was in the habit of visiting a mosque called Masjid al-Rasul, or Masjid of the Prophet, every Friday evening. 
Before leaving that Friday evening, Princess Fatima said to her son that there were bandits on a certain path. The path was unsafe, so he should take care. She set out, knowing that he would go to the path to fight the bandits. <laughs> when Abdul Wahab came into view with his faithful guard, Maimoon, the Amira was fully disguised. She stepped out from the undergrowth wearing a hooded cape and a fine scarf. She gave her horse free rein, and between her horse's ears, she steadied a long spear. Where are you headed, Bedouin kid? Why should I let you pass? she asked menacingly. <laughs> Princess Fatima spurred her horse into a canter, riding straight for her son. Closing in, she attempted to unseat him, but found him as solid and immovable as a rock. He turned and grabbed her arm and began twisting her hand. With her other hand, she removed the scarf from her face and laughed. Seeing her face, Abdul Wahab was startled. You were testing me! She reached out and pulled him toward her, kissing him on his forehead. They rode side by side to Masjid al-Rasul, where they prayed and then returned home. Oh. That evening, Princess Fatima gave her son a large sum of money for his accomplishments. The next day, Princess Fatima and her son rode to the practice field. There they found Abdullah and others from the Bani Sulaim tribe gathered to watch Amr practicing with his instructor, Dawood. The Amira approached and greeted Abdullah. Together, they watched the spear skirmish. Looking on, Abdul Wahab said, I want to try my hand fighting Amr's teacher. Princess Fatima said, Son, he's a very accomplished warrior, and he wrote a book on knighthood. He wrote the book on knighthood. Mm. If he didn't make mince meat of you, then his reputation would be threatened. Mom, that's nonsense. Everyone has the right to prove themselves, and I want to see how I measure up. Abdullah looked over. What's the matter? Princess Fatima told him what Abdul Wahab had said. Abdullah laughed heartily. Let him do what he wants. If a man is destined for greatness, he naturally wants to pursue it. Then he sent a messenger to approach Amr and let him return to the sidelines. To Abdul Wahab, Abdullah said, Be careful what you ask for. The Amir Abdul Wahab rode out on a muscular horse the color of dark clouds like a shiny raven. He made his way around the perimeter of the field, deftly maneuvering on his horse. Those who watched were impressed by his acrobatics. He brandished a spear, advancing on Dawood. They met and parted, circling each other in a wide arc across the field. Dawood, calculating his opponent's skill, charged forward to unseat the young man. But Abdul Wahab maintained his seat. Dawood shook his head, riding back toward the onlookers. That al-Himma, he said, your son is one of the most accomplished warriors of his time. He is bound for great things. The Amira clasped his arm and thanked him. Then she shouted after Abdul Wahab. He dismounted and was surrounded by all those present. They congratulated him, and his chest swelled with pride. News of his prowess spread far and wide. Abdul Wahab and Princess Fatima rode together every day. They hunted with Abdullah and a company of Bani Kilab warriors. One day the group had spread out in the wilderness. The heat of the day was rising. Abdul Wahab was with his guardsmen, and together they had amassed more gazelles and wild animals than they could carry. They were preparing to return when suddenly Abdul Wahab found himself a little ahead of the rest, facing a huge lion. 
The shady trees had obscured his tawny hide. He had a stubby, flat nose and threatening eyes. His roar reverberated off the canyon walls. The atmosphere seemed to darken, rolling with thunder. When he snarled, his breath rose in steam. His claws could crush rocks. His fangs were like skids, and his mouth skides, and his mouth like a well. He moved like a bull, but bigger. As soon as the Amir saw the beast, he urged his horse forward. He held his bare sword in his right hand, and in his left he held a leather shield. He approached with his heart as solid as a rock. The lion stood his ground, roaring, his paws hitting the ground. His eyes flashed, and he charged at the Amir. When the lion was within reach, Abdul Wahab struck him with his sword, slicing the lion down the middle head to tail. In their concern, Abdul Wahab's guardsmen had ridden to Princess Fatima. Amira, your son is in danger. He's facing a Ghandafar lion. The Amira instantly gave her horse loose reins and rushed toward her son. Abdullah, Amr, and the others followed closely behind. They came upon Abdul Wahab and were amazed both by the size of the lion and by its halved state. The Amira said, My son, don't let it go to your head. Killing a wild beast is not as hard as fighting a knight. Those who heard her were struck by her tough love. They remembered how the caliph had foreseen that Abdul Wahab was destined for greatness. News of the young Amir's exploits spread so far that they reached the lands of the room. That's the end of this short chapter introducing mm. her son as a warrior. And that last... Uh, uh, line about news of his exploits spreading to the lands of the room that is the Romans the Byzantines will introduce the story of Nura uh, a Byzantine you know princess and um, there'll be some interesting interlude in relationship between uh, Abdul Wahab's band of followers um, and um, her circle um, so look forward mm. to that when you get to it reading it um fantastic yeah um yeah it's interesting to think about like the the literature from this era really like having much more of an interest intrinsically in in things like family and family histories and family trees and also just even looking at it from kind of a proto-feminist perspective um it's not uncommon to see uh, a female character's kind of story very much bound up in their progeny and their relationship with them um and obviously, you know, that was a really critically important kind of aspect of being uh, a noblewoman at this time, right? Definitely. It's just sort of um, what's interesting is this is a very exceptional case for her because she has set herself up as, you know, kind of transgressing the typical status and role um, of a Arab tribe tribeswoman. You know, she is a warrior. Um, she's basically rejected marriage, uh, indicated that she doesn't uh, want to just have a domestic kind of um, life of responsibility for just the family and those kinds of duties. She wants to have an active public life. She's called an Amira, that is a military commander, but the feminine form of the word. Mm -hmm. So she's a command dress, you know, a la com lady commander. So it's 
um, kind of an unusual, although we do, you know, end up encountering other women, prominent women characters who are in positions of power and authority and, you know, command uh, others in battle. It's clearly, um, you know, the larger cultural context is an awareness that this is unusual and that she's rebelling in some ways or is beyond those restrictions. So the fact that she has this son, it's kind of interesting. It's great because, uh, her mothering is basically, you know, not just the encouragement of him to be a great warrior, but actually training him, you know, and like mm. um, being involved in, you know, imparting her extraordinary skills in battle, uh, you know, to her to her son. So it's kind yeah. of an interesting twist on the mother child relationship here. It, it certainly goes beyond the typical mm -hmm. standard roles where she is both father and mother, you know, on mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. level combines both those roles yeah it's a really it's a really kind of fun passage too um another question on my mind and maybe something some kind of historical myth we could we can delve into a tiny bit before i let you go is i mean we're getting into the point of the story where there you know there's it's dealing with uh wars between skirmishes raids between the the byzantine or eastern romans and the kind of muslim caliphates at the time now you know i think a lot of people have if they're if they're aware of that period at all, they have maybe a little bit of a cartoonish understanding of the chauvinism on both sides. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously the propaganda even at the time was a little bit off the hook in terms of like, hey, one side telling the other one, hey, this these are apostates, these are people that worship something really weird, we don't respect. But at the same time, you know, certainly in Anatolia and elsewhere, there were the the kind of divisions between those two worlds were a little bit more murky, and there was a little bit more cultural in interchange, and certainly groups that kind of existed. Um, in between the two, you know, you had Arabic speaking Christians, for example, in a, in a mm -hmm. lot of these areas in Syria, modern day Syria and whatnot. Um, do you think that we need to update kind of our understanding of what might be cast as kind of a, a primordial ideological clash of civilizations type struggle between between the Muslim world and, and uh, what like kind of Eastern Europe, Western Europe at this time? Or do you think that at the time people had a little bit more of a nuanced understanding of those of those two um, elements? Well, I, I, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, there's evidence for either side. And even in this story, there are, you know, you can find evidence for seeing these as a divided world with culturally distinct realms in conscious opposition and rivalry with one another. That's so much a part of the action of the story is that, okay, the Emperor Leo is this rival figure. However, nonetheless, very oddly, uh, during that interlude of um, one of the uh, one of the uh, chapters is switching sides about her uh, uncle and cousin basically converting and also, uh, you know, serving the other side that during that period, nonetheless, she wins favor of the emperor and actually helps the Byzantine emperor stave off this rival challenge from the king of Portugal who arrives. I mean, it's all this very fantastical sort of situation. But so the king of Portugal comes by, you know, and she actually ends up dressing as the emperor in order to meet the challenge to one-on-one -on -one combat and save Emperor Leo and his empire from being taken over by you know this king of portugal and so you mm. get this way in which they can imagine 
that okay they are rivals but there's still ways in which they're necessary to one another they're part of one another's world and you can cross these sides in her way i think it's meant to illustrate in her way while still maintaining your religion and religious identity as different and distinct uh, as opposed to her uncle and um and uh you know ex ex ex-husband and cousin uh walid who basically associate the two together that you know um religion religious identity and political affiliation go together and when they are on the outs politically in the arabic tribal world or in the abbasid empire in the islamic uh, empire uh, they can't somehow manage to uh, figure out a way to either reconcile themselves to this situation or, you know, seek shelter but maintain their religious identity. So they go the full way. And so the, in a way, there's an argument to be had here that um, there are, um, you know, different ways to sort of be and it doesn't have to just be this pure dichotomy of both religious <laughs> and political on the one hand. Um, you know, against a different religion and, 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 you know, political affiliation on the other. And in fact, actually, there is an, a, an interesting episode in that same uh, chapter about a relative of, um, you know, of the uh, emperor, um, you know, deciding to become, um, you know, uh, a Muslim. And so you have kind of conversion. It's a, a kind of an example of the right way in which this happens for sincere religious motives rather than political ones. Like he's mm. attracted to, you know, her ethics and princess, because of course, Princess Fatima is the one who affects this like grand conversion because mm -hmm. she embodies like some ethics and, you know, recites the Quran or, and, and, and he, he's attracted by this religious and spiritual, uh, you know, uh, rationale. Now, of course, one could read it simplistically. And I think, one you know there's a reason why one would say of course you know it's going to be for spiritual you know reasons in a muslim story about conversion to islam versus political you know uh kinds of motivations um you know for those who are leaving islam and converting to christianity but i think that's too simplistic a reading i think it's more about um who has real ethics you know and who exhibits these valorous um, martial qualities of being a great fighter, but real inner strength at the same time and having a moral center. And that's what's key to Princess Fatima's mm. success as a as a hero here is not just that she's a great fighter and undefeatable, but that sort of strength and invincibility really comes from her moral uh, certainty, her goodness at, at, at the very root. And so yeah. what's being suggested in some ways is that you might be on different sides of this, but if you act in an ethical way, you are actually sharing. There's a lot of, uh, you know, each side shares quite a bit if they are actually honest and true uh, to, the, to the real human ethics that are behind the religious identity or the political affiliation. Mm. Yeah, it seems like a, the more the more I get familiar with it, it her integrity is kind of a, an overarching theme. Um, yeah, exactly. in, the, in the face of, you know, obviously tremendous social, political, historical challenges. Um, yeah, I can't I can't also even as you were saying, I, I mean, I think even being true to herself, right? Mm. Like being a woman who has a calling for the, you know, this heroic life, 
you know, she she's committed to that and doesn't um, allow herself to just be the, somebody else's idea of what a woman should be. So at every kind of level, you see that being the kind of true character definition of Princess Fatima, what makes her a noble warrior woman is that, uh, as you're saying, integrity and truth of, you know, being herself, despite mm. the fact that there's lots of pressures and reasons to try and conform to somebody else's view. Yeah, of what's that, appropriate. And of course, you know, she's not here, we see, you know, she's and she's never really been depicted as, as this hard edged kind of um, Im implacable personality. I mean, we kind of see the softer side, the maternal mm -hmm. side here a little bit, the fun side. Yeah. I mean, the more yeah. the more I get familiar with it, the more I kind of see the appeal and can imagine people over the centuries listening to this tale and just just the enjoyment of it. I'm also I continue to be taken aback just by the, the use of visual metaphor, uh, mm. which is really profound and, and kind of reminds me of some of my favorite um, ancient literature as well. Um, mm. And it's interesting to think about kind of how that differs from more modern forms of expression, um, while also probably inspiring it. Um, I know we're up against the clock today, Adnan, but uh, I'll give you the final word. Is there is there anything else you wanted to comment on related to the text or, or perhaps something you're working on for one of your other podcasts that you wanted to share with people and direct them to? Uh, well, I'm actually, I'm so captivated by this uh, um, text and the beautiful translation and excellent selection of episodes that in addition to the readings um, that I've been doing informally, I would really, I think this is going to be a great teaching tool. I'm going to use it in my classes. And so I was trying to think about what might make it a more durable and involved um, sort of resource. And so I'm thinking of doing a short series that is just um, reading with commentary on it and possibly having a few interviews with scholars uh, who are you know interested in the issue of race and you know because there is the whole episode of her son Abdul Wahab, you know being a black uh, boy and this causing some kind of questions and how is that to be dealt with? Um, so there are scholars who work on race, for example, in Arabic literature, blackness in Arabic literature. That it would be interesting to talk with them about those kinds of issues. Others who are historians of this period that it's set in the Abbasid. Uh, empire and there's some very interesting ways in which uh, the tale situates itself in this contest of the Abbasid revolution against the Umayyad dynasty mm -hmm. um, and also similarly of course somebody who works on gender in the medieval Islamic world I think would be very fascinating to talk with them about the broader context um, of gender relations and how to read Princess Fatima's mm -hmm. uh, transgressive you know she's not a transgressive figure and some kind of ethical core she's very religious she's upheld as this paragon of religion in other episodes what i think is very interesting or other parts of it is also how much she is kind of an ethical muslim rather than just a kind of legal you know mm. there's a legal scholar who comes off really horribly you know in this um because i think there's some kind of sense that that is like all about legal kind of complexities, but in fact, actually what's most important is having a good ethical core, you know, mm. a sound, you know, basis of belief and action. That's more important, you know, than mm. just adhering to every little nuance of, of what the, the scholars, the mm. legal scholars are saying. So I think there's some very interesting issues to explore that with some expertise talking with some 
scholars would be a nice companion so mm. that when people read this they can really get an enriched and contextual literary and historical kind of experience um, so i'm thinking about something of doing something like that with it i mean i think it's a fantastic idea i mean given that it's just been translated in english recently this is really like in terms of english academia some some fresh territory to really explore and a lot of richness there and yeah for sure just in terms of like the religious question this is it definitely seems like a a text that's very skeptical of orthodoxy you know very skeptical of kind of a rigid um uh, kind of by by fiat type approach to ideology or or religion which is really fascinating and, and definitely runs counter to i think a lot of the mainstream interpretations and impressions people have of Islam, which they think of generally as like very rigid, very top down. Right. Um, but I mean, texts like this um, and conversations like this hopefully can push back against that, that kind of caricature a little bit. I hope so. And I thank you for being so interested in this and giving us the opportunity to think and talk about this fascinating text and the broader issues that it brings up. Likewise, and I'm appreciative that you brought it to my attention. And I'll I'll do the next reading. I'm gonna I'm already looking forward to it. We'll we'll do do it up sometime in the next few weeks. Um, but I know you got uh, you got another appointment in a few minutes here, so I'll let you go. Everyone, check out the Modulus and Guerrilla History and your work on David Feldman Show, um, Office Hours, and Weekly Marks. Various reading groups. You're the busiest man in showbiz, Adnan. <laughs> uh, well, it's all good stuff. So yeah, you know, that's the good part. Yeah, but it's great to be on the night rule. Fantastic podcast, yeah. wonderful conversations. I always enjoy being on it. I also enjoy listening to it. negative on cryptocurrency and especially when you consider its ecological aspects it becomes indefensible so you know i think when you talk about how how a tech company could be good i mean i think that ecological consciousness has to be in there not to mention you know respect for workers mm -hmm. all along you know the the vertical aspect of the company so yeah well i know, think that, i think a lot of them are primed in it to a certain extent in terms of like focusing on things like diversity and inclusivity like I do and I do think that partially springs from the fact that the work itself 
is kind of empowering. Um, again, because of the collaborative aspect and, and kind of the, the, it's really just like a team-based thing. So I, I don't even think it would be that hard for some of these companies to really like take a, a good look in the mirror and, and try to make a change. Um, yeah, the ecological aspect, definitely, but that can apply to like pretty much like our entire fucking industrial process, you know? And the, we need to recognize that we are, we do have kind of a metabolic relationship to nature and it's not <laughs> separate from us. You know, I think, I think if we wanted to focus, to, to get more focused, we could say companies that are making consumer software, you know, shit that's in people's hands, that's like a part of their lives, you know? Um, something sure. like a Facebook, like what does is, what is a good Facebook look like? You know, for one, it's probably a, a, a set of companies rather than one. And it's definitely way more fucking regulated than it is now. But like beyond that, well, what is, I mean, yeah, I mean, a set of companies is an interesting way to think about it because, you know, like what is, uh, like what is, what is a product that, um, you know, could compete with Facebook and yet be ethical? I mean, I, I think there's a strong argument that the entire sort of conception of and, and business model of Facebook is, is not in people's best interests or the interests of society or democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. They're standard you know, oil. They're standard oil for the modern age, basically. Well, they're also like a privatized postal service in some way or phone, you know, they're the phone book uh, that also is, um, you know, has all your communications that it can store forever and use for whatever reason it wants. So, you know, that I, I think a good tech company would have to rule out certain, certain kinds of, uh, business practices, you know, especially business models, uh, and, and would probably have, you know, you talked about the thing that makes tech special is the relationship with the users at the end of the day. I mean, I think that it would have to consider users in some way to be equity partners, especially if, if it's a consumer software service that relies on user data, uh, in some way. So that was just a little preview of uh, episode 54 with Corey Pine to check that out and our other awesome premium episodes, uh, including a recent episode with Jamie Peck, which was fantastic. Go to patreon.com slash night and sign up to become a ruler. Bye bye.